Well, good morning. I am so sorry I missed you last week. I know that Steve did an incredible job filling in for me at the very last moment. Steve, thank you so much. We were in Oklahoma and um, got a, an email that said that our flight had been delayed. And that um, delay caused us to miss our other connections that we needed. And so we were on the phone for about an hour trying to find any way that we could get to an airport anywhere close to here. And there were no flights to anywhere around here. And so I thought, what am I going to do? And the first thought was, well, we're at Life Church, and Life Church televises all of their um, worship services to campuses all around Oklahoma, the United States. Perhaps I can go there, record my message. And that didn't work out. And so then I said, okay, what am I going to do? Well, Steve's an incredible communicator, an incredible preacher, is in the Word, and so I know that he can step in and um, preach this message for me. And so, Steve, thank you so very much. I imagine that anytime members of a family are involved in the same line of work, there is a tendency to talk shop when you're talking on the phone or when you get together at family reunions. And that is no different when it comes to ministry. When ministers are in the same family, and they get together, or they speak on the phone, they typically talk shop. And, and as I surrendered to God's call to ministry and began to pastor a church, every Sunday I would call my father, and I would ask my father, Dad, what did you preach on today? That was the question I would always ask. Dad, what did you preach on today? And inevitably, without fail, my dad would always say, Sin, I'm against it. He would say that every single Sunday. Now, that's something that each and every believer should be able to say, amen? But the truth of the matter is, there is a lot of confusion even among those who claim to be Christians when it comes to this, this subject called sin. And if you've been with us for the last several weeks, you know that we're in a study of the book of 1 John that, that we've called the walking dead because all around us, are people who believe that they are alive spiritually, but in reality, they're dead spiritually, and they're on their way to a Christless eternity. And John's purpose in writing the epistle of 1 John is to give us spiritual vital signs, to let us know those signs of life. And if these signs are found in our life, then we can know that we have spiritual life. But if these signs are absent in us, then we can know that we are spiritually dead. Now, now how do we discover these vital signs? Well, well, as we open up John's epistle, we can discover these vital signs by asking some very specific questions. The first question that John asks is this, am I aware of my sin? Have I confessed my sin to God? This vital sign has to do with our attitude towards sin. John said it this way in 1 John 1. He said, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen to this. If we claim we have not sinned, 
We make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. You see, if I am spiritually alive, I haven't denied my sin. I haven't covered up my sin. I haven't excused my sin. I have confessed my sin. I've been convicted of my sin and I've sought forgiveness and cleansing from that sin. Now, what about you? Have you acknowledged your sin before God? Have you been convicted of that sin? Have you confessed it to him? That's the first vital sign. Now, the next question we ask is this. Am I living for the Lord? Am I obeying his commands? In 1 John 2, verses 3 and 4, John says this. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. You see, if I am spiritually alive, God's word is my standard for living. I will want to live a life of obedience regardless of what it costs, regardless of where it leads, regardless of how hard it may be. So what about it? Do you desire to live in obedience to God's word? Do you place your life up against this word and say, I'm going to obey what this word says regardless? Now, the third third vital sign is discovered when we ask this question. And Steve dealt with this last week. Am I forsaking the world? In 1 John 2, verse 15, it says, Do not love the world or any." Thing in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If I am spiritually alive, I have changed masters. Jesus said, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve two masters. I'm sure that Steve used this quote last week from Stephen Lawson. Stephen Lawson said, conversion is a fork in the road experience. The paths to two kingdoms lay before us, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. To choose one is to refuse the other. No one can travel both roads at once. So what about it? Has your love for the Lord replaced your love for the world? If you're spiritually alive, it has. But as we open up God's Word this morning, I want us to look at this fourth vital sign. And the fourth vital sign can be discovered by answering this question, Am I experiencing victory over sin? Am I seeking to live a righteous life? If you haven't already, I want you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, and we're going to focus on the first nine verses this morning. I want you to stand with me in honor of God's Word as we read this together. 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away 
our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's works. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. Let's pray. Father God, I pray today that as we open up your word, that your word will speak to our hearts. Lord, I pray that it will go into our ears, it will penetrate our minds, and it will make its way into our heart so that we will be forever changed this morning. And I pray this in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. And let's be seated. I want you to look with me again at verse 6 if your Bible is still open. Notice what it says there. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. And then it goes on and it says this. No one who continues in sin has seen him or known him. Now understand, John doesn't leave any room for misunderstanding. He gives us no exceptions. He says, if we keep on sinning, it is clear evidence that we do not know the Lord. Let me say that again. If we keep on sinning, it is clear evidence that we do not know the Lord. Now understand, this is major. This is a game changer. Because there are many in American Christianity who have this idea that that I can pray a prayer, I can follow the Lord in some rituals like baptism, and everything is going to be okay. I can continue to live my life the way I choose to live my life. But that's not the case. Now understand, this isn't saying that a Christian will be sinless. But it is saying that a Christian will sin less. As Christians, we will experience a decreasing practice of sin and an increasing practice of righteousness. Some say it this way, sin remains in us, but it will not reign in us. Let me say that again. Sin remains in us, but it will not reign in us. You see, a Christian doesn't lose his or her ability to sin, but our attitude towards sin changes. A Christian wants to be free from sin. Many of us have this mistaken idea that the purpose of salvation is to save us from hell. But that is simply a byproduct of our salvation. The purpose of salvation is to save us from our sins. Someone said before our conversion, we sinned out of willingness. Since our conversion, we sin out of weakness. Now, let me make clear again, this is not saying we will never sin. But it is saying very clearly that a lifestyle, a pattern, a practice of sin that is a continued or repeated action will no longer be relevant or prevalent in our life. It's not even saying that we won't have struggles as believers. But it is saying that we will be seeking to live a life of victory over sin. The person who excuses sin, 
condones sin or justifies their sin has never known the Lord. They've never been transformed by the power of the cross. You see, the Bible teaches that each and every one of us is controlled by one of two masters. We are either controlled by sin, and if we are, then, or Satan, and if we are, then sin will be dominant, or we're controlled by Jesus. And if we're controlled by Jesus, then righteousness will be dominant. I want you to turn with me in your Bible to Romans chapter 6. Paul deals with this in Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says this. He says, what shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live any longer in sin? Now, don't miss that. The Apostle Paul said, we have died to sin as believers. How can we excuse sin and go on living in sin? Now, I want you to listen to a few more verses in chapter 6. Beginning in verse 19, Paul says this. He says, I put this in human terms because you were weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at the time from the things you're now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. Did you get that? When Jesus comes into our life and we become a slave of Jesus, the result is holiness, which leads to eternal life. Did you hear what Paul said? He said those things that we now are ashamed of. When we get saved, when the power of the Holy Spirit comes to live in our life and transforms us and makes us into a brand new person, the things that we used to do by nature... We're now ashamed of the fact that we did them. There are many things that that I did in a rebellious state that I've got to tell you, to this day, they break my heart. To this day, they bring shame to me when I think about them. You say, Rocky, you're forgiven. Yes, I have been forgiven. But those things of the past, I'm still ashamed that I did. And that's what happens when the power of the Holy Spirit comes into our life, transforms us, and and makes us into a new person. Those things we used to do by nature, we're now ashamed that we ever did. Now, as we look at, at 1 John 3, these first nine verses, we discover four reasons that as Christians... We do not keep on sinning. And I want to share these with you because I believe they will help you understand why it is that as a believer you cannot go on sinning. The first reason is the Father's love. Now here's what I've discovered. One of the greatest motivators on this planet is love. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, it says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And, and that is what we are. The Living Bible says it this way, See how very much our Heavenly Father loves us. The message puts it this way, What marvelous love the Father has extended to us. 
The Greek word for how great those two English words, is one Greek word. It implies astonishment at God's love. And, and God's love is certainly something that astonishes us, that surprises us, because nothing can compare to the love of God. Christian Stanfield sings a song, and the words of that song go like this, Your love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on me. It's higher than the mountains that I face. It's stronger than the power of the grave. It's constant in the trial and the change. One thing remains because on and on and on and on it goes. It overwhelms and it satisfies my soul. And I never, ever have to be afraid because one thing remains. One thing remains. Remains in death, in life, I'm confident and covered by the power of your great love. My debt is paid. There's nothing that can separate my heart from your great love. Understand, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is found in Jesus Christ. Romans 5 verse 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This tells us that that God's love is undeserved. We can't earn it. We can't deserve it. He didn't tell us to straighten up, walk right, or, or, or get our act together, and then he would love us. He loves us just the way we are. Doesn't that blow your mind? God loves you in spite of your sin. God loves you while you were still in bondage and in slavery to your sin. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting, eternal life. God's love is not only undeserved, God's love is unselfish. God's love calls God to do something. He gave his Son as a sacrifice, as the payment for our sin. Most oftentimes, our love focuses on what we can get, but God's love focuses on what he can give to us. God gives us eternal life, and it is a gift that cost him his son. Romans 8 verse 39 says, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's love is unmatched. Nothing can separate us from his love. Human love says, I love you if, or perhaps I love you because. But God's love says, I love you regardless. And nothing nor anyone will ever be able to separate you from my love. Now that blows my mind because that is a love that is beyond human comprehension. That is a love that is beyond our human ability to give on our own. That's agape love. That's God's love. In Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 35, I read verse 39. But beginning in verse 35, it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Now, God's love is so great for us that it has made us a part of his family. He calls us his children. Now, I, now I don't know if you grasp the greatness of that, but the creator of all, the sovereign God, has said that you and I are his children. Now, there are two word pictures that are used to describe that in Scripture. The first word picture is the word born. We are born into God's family. The Bible says that we cannot be a part of God's family unless we are born. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are born again. So we're born into God's family. I, I was at the birth of all four of my children. And, and I don't know if it's cemented the love I have for my children. I don't know whether being there or not cemented that love. But I got to tell you, from the moment I saw them, I loved them with an unconditional love. They were a part of my family. I had the privilege this past summer in, in Lynchburg to be in the delivery room when my grandson was born. I, I got to tell you, I think I got more teary-eyed and more choked up seeing my grandson born than I did even seeing my children born. And again, I don't know whether that cemented a bond or not, but as I saw them born, I knew that they were a part of my lineage. They were a part of my family. So we're born into God's family. But then the Bible also says we're adopted into God's family. You see, there are children who were born who were unwanted by their parents. But when someone adopts a child, that person who adopts that child is saying, I want you. I want you. And God's word is saying to each and every one of us that we are born into God's family, but we are also adopted into God's family. The best of two worlds. And, and God's love for us that allows us to be a part of his family compels us to live a righteous life. I heard a story about a teenage girl who was out with their friends one night and, and they suggested that they go to a questionable place and she hesitated and, and finally she said, I, I better not. And one of her friends sarcastically said, are you afraid that your, your dad will hurt you? And she looked at her friend and she said, no, I'm afraid I'll hurt my dad. And can I tell you, listen to me, that's what happens when we become part of God's family. It's not that we're afraid that the Heavenly Father is going to hurt us if we sin. No, we don't want to sin because we don't want to hurt our Heavenly Father. Now, there's something else you need to understand here. Being selected by the Father means being slighted by the world. Look at the last part of verse 1. It says, the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. You see, God's word continually warns us of this. Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep in mind, it hated me first. The apostle Paul said, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You see, the world is not going to appreciate you for who you are or whose you are. And so the first reason a Christian doesn't sin 
is because of the Father's love for us. But there's a second reason we don't sin, and that's the Son's return. Look at verses 2 and 3. Dear friend, now we are children of God, and, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but what we know, but, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. You see, the Bible makes it clear that, that Jesus is coming back, and, and God's plan is that when he appears, you and I will be like him. In Romans chapter 8, it says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. One translation says it this way, For from the very beginning, God decided that those who came to him should become like his Son. Now, this isn't talking about our bodies, although we will have glorified bodies like Jesus. This is talking about our spirit. God wants us to be righteous like Jesus. God's desire is to restore you to that place he originally created you to be. Can you imagine the moment when you see your Savior for the very first time? I want you to think for just a moment about, about a person that you really admire in this world. Someone that you look up to in this world. And think if you had the opportunity to go and see them and visit them face to face. Do you think you would prepare yourself? I think you would. You would get in the bathroom and you would take a shower and you would put on deodorant and, and you would put on some cologne and you would fix your hair up and, and you would put on some nice clothes and, and, and when you went to see that person, you would be on your best behavior. You would be respectful. Why? Because you're seeing somebody that you greatly admire. Can you imagine the very first time that we see Jesus? That's why the Bible says that those who have this hope purify themselves just as he is pure. When we sit back and we realize that one day you and I are going to stand face to face with Jesus, the one who died on the cross for our sins, that compels us to purify ourselves and live in a way that is honoring and pleasing to him. So the Father's love compels us to, to live a life without sin. The, the Son's return compels us to live a life without sin. But third, the Son's death compels us. Look at verses 4 and 5. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sin. And in him is no sin. Now John begins by giving us a definition of sin. And he says, sin is breaking the law. Sin is lawlessness. Now that word literally means living as if there is no law. It's a picture of someone who is living their life as if God doesn't exist or at the very least doesn't matter. It's rebelling against God's clearly defined laws. It's deciding to live my life my way rather than God's way. But the thing is, the Bible says we are all lawless 
because we have all sinned. And realizing that sin, remember, is the first vital sign, acknowledging our sin. The Bible says for all have sinned. That includes each and every one of us. We've all lived lawless lives. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to deal with our sin. He came to take away our sin. John chapter 1 verse 29 says, look, the Lamb of God, when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, look, the Lamb of God that, that takes away the sin of the world. When Jesus died on the cross, he not only delivered us from the penalty of sin, he did do that. He delivered us from the power of sin. He died to take away our sin. And that word take away means to remove something by lifting it up. It is a picture of a strong man lifting up a heavy object and carrying it off. And that's what Jesus did. He died to take away our sin. Now listen very carefully. If you don't want your sins removed, that's evidence of the fact that you don't know him. I've met people before. I've talked to people even since I've been here. It's your pastor who has said, I, I want to get saved. And as I talk to them and, and discover some things that are going on in their life, I, I share with them that giving your life to Jesus means turning from sin because Jesus came to set us free from sin. And they will inevitably say oftentimes, but I don't want to give that up. And I'm thinking to myself, and I've said this before, well, if you don't want to give up this sin, I mean, that's why Jesus died, so that you can be free from this sin. Why do you want to get saved? Well, I don't want to go to hell. Well, being saved isn't just not going to hell. Being saved is being set free from sin because God is a holy, righteous God, and sin is diametrically opposed to who God is. And when we love God, we're going to hate sin. Not just in the lives of others, we're going to hate sin in our own life as well. Jesus died to take away our sin. Now notice why Jesus was uniquely qualified to take away our sin. It says, as that verse ends in verse 5, in him was no sin. He had no sin. You see, Jesus was uniquely qualified to take away our sin because he was sinless. Because he was sinless, he wasn't dying and paying the price for his sin. He was dying and paying the price for our sin. And so the son's death compels us to live a life that is free from sin. But there's one final thing that this passage teaches, and that is our spiritual DNA compels us. Notice what it says in verses 7 through 9. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's works. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because, get this, God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. You see, everyone, the Bible teaches, is either a child of God or a child of the devil. And the only way that we can be a part of God's family is to be born into God's family. Remember, Jesus says, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, don't miss 
what John says here. He says we can't continue into sin because God's seed remains in us. Now, the Greek word for seed is the word sperma, from which we get our word sperm from. So, literally, God plants himself in us. His DNA is in us once we are saved. I want you to understand that. I want you to grasp that. This is important. When you're saved, God puts his spiritual DNA in you. His sperma is now in you. You've all heard of paternity test. Paternity test is how you can tell whether someone is really your child or not. And a paternity test simply reads the DNA of the child and compares it to the DNA of the father. And if the two match, then that child belongs to the father. If they don't match, then that child doesn't belong to the father. John says that if we have been saved, we have God's spiritual DNA in us, and we will begin to look like God, we will begin to act like God, we will have a desire to follow God. Why? Because his DNA is in us. So let me ask you a question. Where are you this morning when it comes to to sin and victory over sin? Because because I, I just know that there are many people today who say they're saved, and yet they're living in willful rebellion, and they've told God, I don't care what you say, I'm not turning from this. I don't care what you say, but I'm not changing this. And I could give you example after example, but, but we don't need to do that. You know your own example. Here's what I know. If I've been saved, I have a desire to be free from sin. I have a desire to live a life that is obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. I have a desire to be righteous in the way that I live. And so let me ask you some questions this morning as we wrap this up. Has the Father's love transformed your desires? Do you have a desire for righteousness and holiness? Second, are you seeking to live a pure life because you know one day you will stand before your Savior? When you stand before your Savior, you don't want to be ashamed. Third, has God's seed been planted in your life? Has your desires, has your motivation, has your will changed because there's something inside of you that's been miraculously changed? Fourth, have old things passed away? Things become new. You see, the answer to these questions will determine whether you're a child of God or not. The answer to these questions will determine whether you're spiritually alive or you're one of the walking dead. I want you to bow your head with me. And with your head bowed and with your eyes closed this morning, 
I just want to ask you that question again. Do you have the desire to be free of sin? Do you long to live a life of righteousness? If you're here this morning, either at this campus or at our West Campus, and, and you're still living in sin, I want to encourage you to humble yourself before God this morning. Repent of your sin. Ask God to come into your life and change you and make you a brand new person because he can. If that's you this morning and you need to do that, I want to encourage you to pray this prayer. Dear God, I come to you this morning acknowledging that I've been living life my way. I've wanted to be set free from the penalty of sin. I don't want to go to hell, but I've never really wanted to be set free from sin. Today, I want you to set me free. Come into it. Plant your seed in me. Make me a new person, I pray. Amen. Now, with every head bowed and with every eye still closed, if you're here this morning and you prayed that prayer and you meant that with all your heart, would you just raise your hand right now so I can rejoice with you if you're here and prayed that prayer? Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. I want everyone to look at me. If you prayed that prayer and, and you meant it just then, here's what I'd like for you to do. On that card that Pastor David was talking about earlier, our communication card, there's a box, I prayed today to become a lifelong follower of Jesus. If you did that and you meant it, check that box, put that in the offering plate, let us know so that we can follow up with you and tell you what your next steps are, how you can grow in your walk with him. Because nothing is more important than knowing Jesus and then living for Jesus. Now, as we prepare to take up our offering this morning, let me just remind you that, that giving is an act of worship. And as we give, let's prepare our hearts right now to give in a way that honors and pleases God. And, and after I pray, we will receive our, our offering. Father God, I come to you right now in Jesus' name thanking you for the opportunity to give. I pray you'll use what we give to bring glory to your name. Use what we give to touch hearts and change lives, I pray. Amen.